So uh, we will see. I think that I'm excited about how people are excited about wines, excited about Virginia wines in particular. This is Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers, craft brewers, and spirit distillers in the DMV. So grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and let's get started. Thank you, Asia. And hello and welcome to the third episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher. I is that and that is I. And yes, fans, we are going to finally talk about wine on this episode. I made a little trip down to Virginia wine country to the town of Leesburg and visited a spot, Travel and Leisure Magazine, named as one of its top 25 wineries in the United States in 2018. And that place is Zephaniah Farm Vineyard. Zephaniah Farm Vineyard is located on land that has been owned by the Hatch family since the mid 1900s. The history dates back further than that though. The manor house was constructed in the 1830s and built by the same builder of former president James Monroe's Oak Hill Estate. When the Hatch family purchased the property in 1950, it became the site of their almost 400 acre dairy farm. Bill Hatch, my guest today, grew up tending the farm with his siblings. And now in his third generation, the property is still a working farm although they are working with slightly different elements. They're raising grass-fed Angus and cultivating grapevines to produce award-winning wines. While Bill may have started out his farming career working with dairy, wine has long been a part of the family history, and he makes some darn fine wine too. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Bill Hatch of Zephaniah Farm Vineyard. Let's all raise a glass. All right. Well, Bill Hatch, thank you very much for doing this. I, I love coming out here to Zephaniah Farm Vineyard. So let's start off by telling us a little bit about this farm. I know this is uh, one of the older farms in Northern Virginia that's been owned by your family, but there was some history before that. Oh, absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. I, I guess I'll start chronologically at the, as far back as I know, and uh, that would be in uh, the 1740s. In fact, 1742, an Irish-born Quaker came to uh, America. He was a religious refugee because the Church of England and the Catholic Church really weren't too hot on Quakers, so they they had to sign their allegiance to the king to be religious refugees and come to the new world, came to Philadelphia. Philadelphia was crowded. So then he heard, this gentleman was George Nixon, he heard that there was good land south of the Potomac River. And so uh, he came down here to what is now Loudoun County and approached a gentleman by the name of Thomas Lord Fairfax and uh, was able to get a land grant for 2,000 acres which cost him two pounds sterling. Today, that's $2.40 <laughs> maybe. Uh, if deal. you adjust it for inflation, it's uh, about the cost of four tires for my Subaru, wow. about $750. And uh, 
that family, the Nixon family, was here for 204 years. Wow. Yeah, so um, 1742 until 1946. And uh, then my family uh, came. Uh, my dad, Bill Hatch, was born in California. His dad was a naval officer who shipped out in 1918 to Europe. There was a war going on, World War I, and there was also a pandemic. And my dad's father died of the pandemic of 1918. Uh, three months before my dad was born. So my dad never knew his dad. Wow. But anyway, my, uh, my dad had a stepfather who was also a naval officer. And my dad grew up uh, in Pearl Harbor, wherever they built battleships and things like that for the U.S. Navy. Mare Island Navy Shipyard, Norfolk, Virginia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But then um, when my dad was, I think, about... Uh, 32 years old, he uh, joined the U.S. Navy in 42, and uh, during World War II, he was a naval officer and uh, worked all over the world, but mostly he uh, spent most of his time World War II in the Soviet Union. Uh, he oh. delivered minesweepers to the Soviets. They were allies, and yeah. uh, they, uh, they needed help to unmine Murmansk and shipyards in uh, in the Soviet Union. So uh, my dad was spent four years in the Soviet Union, learned Russian, uh, learned the culture, uh, came back and had signed his tuition to Pennsylvania, uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia for pre-med. Uh, but when he signed his discharge papers in Washington, D.C., he met a buddy that he'd met in Moscow, a naval officer. And uh, he said, Bill Hatch, don't don't become a doctor. We have a job for you. You speak Russian and you've lived in the Soviet Union yeah. for four years. So <laughs> yeah. anyway, that that he he was going to be in Washington a lot, the Pentagon, U.S. Naval Intelligence. Right. And that's why we are where we are. And in 1949, uh, my dad found this farm. Uh, he'd purchased a farm in Manassas, but there was no house for us to live in. So as soon as he found this farm in 19. 49. He ran over here and purchased this farm as fast as he could. And uh, we've lived here ever since. So it's been, we moved in January 1st, 1950, 70 years ago. And uh, my dad was a naval officer and a dairy farmer. Uh, dairy farming is uh, slid out of the uh, mainstream agriculture. Uh, cows produce 300% more milk than they did in 1950. Yeah. And uh, consumption of milk is down 30%. Mathematically, that just does not work. So in the uh, late 80s, we got out. I was searching for other things to do. My brother and I grew beef, uh, grass-fed beef, but I realized that it was not going to hold our farm in the family. It just wasn't going to be able to pay the bills. So I started looking at other things. Let me ask you about that mm -hmm. beef farming, because I never got that part of the story before. Were your customers, uh, did you sell it locally or was it, or did you have other people that purchased? We tried everything, uh -huh. uh, uh, not much wholesale, but retail to farmers markets. And that was, that is our beef business. Uh, our customers told us they wanted no grain. They wanted no corn, especially no corn fed to their beef. This was coming up to be a new thing. Uh, a guy named Mr. Poland in California had written 
a great book called The Omnivore's Dilemma, and people were reading it and said, uh, we don't want corn fed to our cattle. Yeah. So uh, that's we sold to Farmer's Market in Leesburg. That was majority of our of our business for beef, but it was relatively slow business. Yeah. yeah. So how large is this? How many acres is this farm? This was started as a 400-acre dairy farm, mm -hmm. a half of which is in woods and uh, not tillable land. Uh, but we, uh, about 150, 200 acres of arable, tillable pasture and cropland. So how many head of cattle can that raise? Uh, with grass fed, not as many as you could as if you felt, <laughs> as if you grew corn. Right, uh, right. We're maintaining a, a mama cow herd of about 40 cows right now. And if they all produce a calf, which they usually do, then that would be 40 calves every year. And uh, so the class of 2020 was born this spring and uh, they will eventually um, wind up as beef, um, grass-fed beef uh, in about less than 30 months. Okay. So uh, then they graduate. It's a euphemism. <laughs> but before you got, so was it always around 40 or before you got into the wine business or was it, would you, did you produce larger? Oh, larger. Think, yeah. uh, in the dairy cow business, we milked as many as 90 cows. Okay. We were in a long tunnel and we saw the light at the end of the tunnel just keep on milking more cows and maybe we we'll, can break even uh it didn't work out that right. well and so i remember telling my dad and my brother 35 or 40 years ago you know there are easier ways to lose money than dairy farming <laughs> and so we got out of dairy farming which i think was a great move at the time because uh, had we stayed in, we probably would not own the farm anymore. Yeah. It would have been yeah. the bank's uh, farm and it would have been sold for houses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we're, the podcast is about wine, but I, yes. I love hearing about yeah. the history of these places. So tell me about getting into the wine business. Where oh, did that evolution come from? Uh, you know, that is absolutely a great question. Uh, my mother and dad were interested in wine, but my mother was more of a wine drinker than my dad. My dad really liked uh, something called an old fashioned, which I think is a very sweet whiskey drink. Uh -huh. uh, he did drink wine, but he kind of missed the sugary part. Uh, I remember my first vintage in uh, 2002, um, he said, boy, it's not very sweet, is it? <laughs> and, uh, it was a Cabernet Franc, a uh, red wine, and yeah. I thought it tasted pretty good. But uh, my dad encouraged me I, at one point. Um, I said, dad, do you think I'll be able to grow wine? And he said, yeah, I think you can. And then, uh, I said, dad, do you think that we will be successful? And he said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so that was a little bit of, uh, it wasn't discouraging for me. I, I think that was a realistic goal that, uh, my family, uh, I have five siblings, uh, they kind of said, uh, why don't you leave this to the experts? What, what are you trying to do here? You, you don't know much about growing and making wine. And uh, there is a great um, mysticism maybe about mm -hmm. wine. There's a whole different vocabulary. And uh, they, they knew that this was something that I was not tremendously knowledgeable about. But in 2001, I visited my daughter, Emily, uh, who was attending a overseas a uh, 
year abroad in her college education. She was studying up in the Alps of Italy in a little uh, place called Sud Tyrol, uh, which is South Tyrol, former Tyrolean Empire. She was studying in a 1,200-year-old castle where wine had been grown for maybe two or 3,000 yeah, years, a long forever. time. Yeah. And uh, I visited her uh, and I spoke to her professor of agroarchaeology. He was teaching how agriculture and wine was grown and made 1,200 years ago. And uh, his name is Siegfried. We called him Zizzo. And I had a conversation. I said, Zizzo, I know you make wine here, and I would love to grow wine in Virginia. Uh, but maybe it's beyond mm. somebody with dairy farming experience to grow this wonderful wine. And uh, Zizzo looked me square in the eye and said, Bill, it's farming. Just plant the damn grapes. And uh, we do have that as our kind of motto right now <laughs> is just plant the damn grapes. Right. It is farming. And we did. We came home in the next spring. Uh, Bonnie and my three children and I planted uh, a thousand vines, uh, Cabernet Franc and a uh, grape called Chardonnay. Now, why did you make that decision? Why did you choose those uh, That's a good question. Uh, there was a body of research uh, carried out by Virginia Tech, uh -huh. our land-grant university, and they had planted a lot of different grapes. And it seemed like Cab Franc worked in Virginia. Um, the climate here is good in the spring and summer, and uh, but not so good in the wintertime. We have a <clears throat> we have a lot of cold weather in the wintertime, and a lot of the grapevines that do well in Europe uh, succumb to winter kill. Yeah. It just gets too cold here. Uh, oftentimes we're zero below zero, five below, 10 below zero Fahrenheit. It's just too cold for the vascular system of most grapes that mm -hmm. were developed over millennium in warmer climates, uh, not quite as cold. So we planted the Cabernet Franc, a vinifera grape, and we planted uh, a white grape uh, called Chardonnay, mm -hmm. which is a derivative of Chardonnay. It's uh, Saval Blanc crossed with Chardonnay, and then the offspring of that mating, they Cornell University crossed back to Chardonnay. So it's about high percentage of Chardonnay, but it has just enough North American DNA to give it survival, tactic survival qualities in North America, particularly in the East Coast where we get cold. Yeah. I asked you that question, oh, one, because I've always wanted to know why people make their decisions, but the other one is, you got into this business from the winemakers I've spoken to, especially those that raise their own grapes, right at the seems that right at the time when the Mid-Atlantic started understanding the terroir and the area. And a lot of winemakers before then, it seemed they made their decision on whatever they wanted to drink. You know, like, I like Pinot Noir, so I'm going to plant that, but that may not do very well here. And so when you said Crab Franc and Chardonnay, which were, I know just from learning that it, it, those do well here, I wondered why you chose them. Uh, good question. And that entire, entirely relates to uh, land-grant universities, uh, Virginia Extension Service. Uh, that is, we learned about dairy farming from Virginia Tech. We learned about beef farming from Virginia Tech. It's meant to help the agricultural business. And they started research on grapes back in the 80s with Dr. Tony Wolf. And I was excited to read this stuff. And it, it just made a whole lot of sense uh -huh. to me. And every time I, I looked, it looks like, wow, this could work here. And Cabernet Franc does do well. And that was our very first grape. And those vines are still doing well 18 years later. So how many acres are your vines on? Uh, we're on 12 
acres of grapes here. And uh, then we grow uh, another three acres at a doctor's home uh, in Aldi, Virginia, mm. uh, near Oak Hill, Virginia, former residence of Dr. Uh, excuse me, President uh, Monroe. Okay. So Cab Franc and Chardonnay, you're still growing? Yes. Yeah. What other uh, varieties? Oh, gosh. Then we, we branched out every year. Uh, we've planted more grapes, it seems like. Uh, we're going to take a break in, in two, uh, 20 21 because uh, we're scheduled to get the brood 17 of the cicadas to come back. Uh It's a huge brood of cicadas and they're not very harmful, except that the females uh, are looking for the uh, right size twig to lay their eggs. So they have an ovipositor, they serrated, uh, they cut into a little branch and lay their eggs. Well, if we planted grapes in 2021, the little seedlings trunks would be, or not seedlings, but the little vines would be developing their trunks that first year. And the cicada comes along and says, look, perfect size, perfect size. to plant my eggs. And uh, we found out in 2000, uh, 2003 that uh, that was a 17 year mark, 2004, uh-huh. uh, that, that we damaged, have damaged, uh, damaged trunks because the the cicada laid their eggs in them. So we said, okay, we're not going to plant any grapes in 2021 because of the cicada. We know that they're going to be here in a big way. So uh, that's that's about where we are. I'll tell you about more of the grapes. We, uh, I have to go through them geographically from <laughs> east to west. Uh, sure. Petit Verdot, Petit Mansing, yeah. Chardonnay, and of course our Cabernet Franc. Merlot, a grape called Muscatatnel, which is an ancient grape, uh, then more Chardonnay, uh, and then we went into Vermentino, and I'll tell you more about the Vermentino in a moment. But okay. uh, And then we uh, planted more Merlot, and then uh, we went into Viognier, and then we planted more Petit Verdot, and then we planted... Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and more Petit Mansing. Yeah. And that kind of rounds it out. And then this year at our our site down in Aldi, we planted a grape that we just learned about and we're kind of excited about it called Chelois, C-H-E-L-O-I-S, a red grape. We're excited to see how it turns out. We think that it can do well here in Virginia. Not too many people have planted it. But yeah, researchers... I had to run into it. Now, so you, is it a blending grape or would you do a, a well, single variety? Well, you know, good question. Um, some grapes, we, we approach winemaking as perhaps a chef would approach preparing a meal. Uh, the example I use is uh, flour, sugar, butter, salt. Individually, they're okay, but... They don't do well on their own. You blend them together and you've got something, cakes and cookies. So I, yeah. I look at winemaking that way. And if we can make a wine better than the individual wines that we're blending, then we've achieved our goal to make yeah. the best wine we possibly can. Yeah. I, I find that I like blends more than single varietals, even though, you know, it might be really good. You know, if it's a if it's a good vintage, but uh, I like blends better. You know, we only make uh, well. We, we've made three single varietals: Cabernet Franc as a single varietal, Chambrasin oh. as a single varietal, uh, Chardonnay as a single varietal, 
Gosh, otherwise we're doing blending for most of our wines. The last time I was here, which was probably 18 months or maybe two years ago, I believe we tasted a, and I should have bought a bottle of it. I remember thinking, regretting not doing it. It was a blend of a petite man saying with that grape you mentioned, which was an ancient grape. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would have been, we call that wine the Adeline. That yeah. is named after my great-grandmother. And by the way, to back up a little bit, the name of the winery is Zephaniah. That mm -hmm. was my great-grandfather's first name. And okay. we just thought, wow, what a unique name. Biblical. Nobody can pronounce it. <laughs> oh, let's choose that as our winery name. Yeah. It, yeah. Little unique. And it it was my great-grandfather who started a steamship company in California, in San Francisco, that uh, kind of allowed my dad to purchase this farm in 1950 for uh -huh. $40,000, which was different than the value today. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, a, that's a good piece of money back then. Yeah. Yeah. I always like the name Zephaniah. Kind of an ominous book in the Bible from what I understand. It is. It is <laughs> ominous. It's, it's absolutely correct. Correct. In fact, I paraphrase the book, short book, mm -hmm. three or four pages long. You can read it in 10 minutes, but it's full of fire and brimstone. <laughs> it is Old Testament. And the way I paraphrase it, and this is a little crude, and I hope it's not sacrilegious. If you screw up, you will be punished. There is no forgiveness in the Old Testament. Yeah, no. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yeah. yeah. Straight line. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, it makes things simple that way. It's very <laughs> yeah. simple. I want to go back to farming just a little, and then we'll concentrate more on the wine. You went from being a dairy farmer, beef producer, to, uh, and you still do a little bit of that, but uh, cultivating a vineyard. What skills from your past farming translated, and what did you have to just totally relearn or learn? I mean, was it, is it just ap apples and oranges or was it, I mean, obviously just, I guess, growing grass is probably pretty uh, simple, but. I was not aware after growing corn and growing forage for cattle, uh -huh. I was not aware of the intense amount of labor needed to grow grapes. Um, we could grow a hundred acres of corn and frequently we did. Uh, and it would take us maybe a hundred hours to grow a hundred acres of corn. And what I've learned in the wine growing business that for every acre of grapes that you grow, you better count on about 300 to 400 hours of hand labor for each acre. Huge amount of yeah. hand labor. Uh, for the way we grow wine in Virginia. Uh -huh. Now, have you noticed since your first, okay, your, your first uh, vintage was 2001? Uh, 2002. Or first crop, yeah. I guess, was mm -hmm. 2001, mm -hmm. I guess. Have you seen a marked change in the growing conditions since from then till now? I mean, I, I know there are, there's, there are climate change issues, but are there grapes that you grew back then that you would have a difficult time growing now or, or have things been pretty much the, the same? No, things change constantly. That's in farming. Um, we are the biggest gamblers in the world. <laughs> we have no idea what could happen tomorrow or <laughs> tonight or much less this winter. Uh, constantly catching up and adapting uh, this season is a great example. We, our harvest is about two weeks behind 
where it traditionally has been. And it was because of the cool spring that we had. Mm -hmm. The grapes just have not had enough degree days, that is the amount of sun heat, to mature when they would have in most average years. There is no average year, though. I mean, they all, yeah. they all are different. Now, does it, because we had a stretch there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say August, maybe late July, where it was really hot mm -hmm. and hotter than average. But is it more of a time thing? It had, we had the cool early season, part of the season. But because you had a stretch that was hotter than average, it still didn't make a difference. You still need that more time. It was yeah. interesting that you say that because yeah. we really thought the grapes were going to catch up. Look yeah. at all this heat. It was 100 <laughs> degrees every day and hot, 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 dry conditions. And we said, wow, we're probably going to catch up. Uh, it turns out when we started harvesting, no, we did not catch up. We were about still 10 days behind uh, mm. where we were. Uh, the heat is important, but the heat also generates problems. Uh, for example, when the little uh, shoots come out, there are little flowers on, on each shoot that bloom in June. And if they pollinate and everything's okay, each little flower will turn into a grape. They self-pollinate. Uh, we uh, And the little berries form, form on the cluster. And then at the same time, we're trying to um, pull some leaves around the, the cluster, the grape zone, to allow the sunlight to hit the cluster. Well, it's just like you and me going out into uh, June and July sun after being inside all winter. They get sunburned. Hmm. And that, was a, that has been a serious problem for us is those clusters sunburn uh, in the hot weather. And that was happening to us right after bloom. Bloom happens in June and uh, those little berries form. They get real intense sun in late June and we were getting some sunburn. So what do you do uh, for that? You, you, can you do you put tarps on it and cover uh, it? Or? No, because you want the sun to hit it. It's just yeah. such a shock. Um, it's uh, we just adapt the best we can. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the art, the, yeah. part of the, art, the craft yeah. of it. Now, and I really, I know when I uh, contacted you about doing this interview, you're in the middle of harvest, so I, I know your time is very precious here. It was raining this morning. I expected it to be raining now. It's turned out to be a very beautiful day on my trip down here. I'm about a mile, an hour away from here. Um, does the rain during harvest throw off your timing there? Can you harvest during rain? I mean, unless it's torrential, I understand if it's pro that problematic. Oh, but. we've harvested in torrential rain. Okay. Um, <laughs> when the grapes are ready, they have to come in. Uh, we've learned some lessons in, for example, 2011, probably the worst vintage I've ever experienced in my life. Um, you know, I... I harvested, I wanted to make red wine, so I left the red grapes out to ripen. And uh, well, they went right through, right, they, they, they never ripened, they started rotting. And uh, so I, heart, well, we made wine in 2011, red wine. I was kind of hard headed and we made red wine. I shouldn't have. I should have uh, <laughs> harvested those grapes early and made a rose. Yeah. And uh, we have learned, like, in 2018, another difficult vintage, a lot of rain. Uh, it rained all but three days in September in yeah. 2018. Yeah. Uh, we were in our Cabernet Franc, our first block, and my son and I were harvesting grapes, and we were looking at the grapes and tasting the grapes, and we said, 
these are not going to make a great red wine. So we thought about it for about 30 seconds and we said, <laughs> let's make this whole block into rosé. And uh, right now, that rosé from 2018 is has been our best-selling wine for the last six months. And, yeah. Uh, so I think that was kind of, we decision-making is always difficult in hindsight, but that was a good decision. Yeah. Well, I've heard a couple of people tell me, you know, that the bad news was you had to turn a lot of red wine into rosé. The good news is that this didn't happen 10 years ago when nobody was buying rosé. <laughs> it's very, it's a big seller. Oh, now, absolutely. So. A yeah. stat that I've uh, read is that in America, uh, consumption, purchase of rosé shot up 60% in one year. I yeah. think it was 2016, 17, yeah. uh, just in time for that rainy season <laughs> that we had. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, what is your go-to? I'm going to talk a little bit about wine. What is, what's your go-to bottle of wine that you produce? And if you go out, let's first let's start with this. Zephaniah wine. What is your, if you could just, if you had a go-to bottle, even if it's one that's a historic bottle that you don't have anymore. Oh, gosh. Uh, good vintages. Well, I will say that, you know, as you said before, many people want to grow the grapes and the wine that they like. Right. Well, a lot of them don't grow here. Uh, <laughs> but we've learned that we really work to, we need to work with the nature we have. So right. uh, uh, red wine, mm -hmm. uh, single it out by saying red wine, uh, full bodied red wine. That's what I like. Yeah. Um, so do I. Based on <laughs> Cabernet Franc. Boy, Cabernet Franc does well here. Many people say, oh, I really like the Cabernet Sauvignon. And Cabernet Sauvignon is a delicious wine. It does not do well in Virginia. Yeah. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is the offspring of Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, they don't know whether it was mated by man's hand or nature, but uh, DNA testing says those are the parents. Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet, excuse me, Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc. Uh, but the offspring, Cabernet Sauvignon, most popular red grape probably in the world, uh, is longer seasoned by two or three weeks yeah. than Cabernet Franc. And that's why we love Cab Franc. We can ripen it almost every year. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, we struggle with. And uh, we've learned personally that uh, Cabernet Sauvignon can make some great wine maybe every six years. Mm. Um, our last vintage of Cabernet Sauvignon that we made, we thought was worthy of making, was 2013 uh, before 2019. 2019, great season. We made Cabernet Sauvignon in 2019. It's sitting in the cellar. We haven't released it. I think it's delicious. Uh, which one would be my go-to? Uh, either one. But then getting back to the year-to-year -year, uh, workhorse for Virginia, uh, Cabernet Franc. Yeah. It has to be Cabernet Franc. Petit Verdot is a rising star. Yeah, I love uh, we, have, uh, we just planted another acre of uh, Petit Verdot in 2019, and we're excited about getting our crop in 2021, mm -hmm. hopefully. Good. I like Petit Verdot. That's my girlfriend's favorite anyway. You know, one of the things I want to do... Well, I hope this podcast does, at least with the winemakers I interview and just talking about Virginia and Maryland wine, is that I think there's an expect people have the wrong expectation, unless you've been a constant consumer or you're a wine head. Uh, you're mentioning uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, I, most people, 
get their introduction, or most of them cab, cab solve that they consume is usually from California if you're an American. And that tastes totally different than what you're going to get here. And so a lot of times I will introduce my friends to Virginia wine, Virginia reds, and because they're expecting a California red, they have a negative thought about it until I explain to them what they're supposed to be drinking, and all of a sudden they love it. And so I think a lot of it's just miseducation or, 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 or wrong expectations. They just don't know what they're drinking. Um, have you found that to be the case? Oh, boy, you've just hit a real can of worms. Yes. Uh, we had this thing in America called Prohibition, and yeah. it totally threw us out of whack for wine and alcohol. Uh, Prohibition was terrible. I mean, it there was no... There was wine made. Uh -huh. uh, you were allowed to make wine in your home, but uh, the U.S. government came to the winemakers in America. There weren't that many, and most of what they were producing was fortified, cheap barroom wine, uh -huh. high alcohol, add whiskey, brandy, add some kind of distilled spirits to wine, and then, boy, it doesn't go bad. It lasts forever, like port, and uh, it was cheap. It was It would get you on your... Gosh, it would it would put you down if yeah. you drank too much of it. I yeah. think that's one of the reasons that prohibition came into effect. But our experience with wine in America, we lost 50 years uh, by doing that because we are now in 2020 just coming out of that deep hole that was uh, created by prohibition. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons that Americans tend to think that you have to drink a varietal rather than a blend because yeah. they don't know well, what what is it and you know, say oh well it's six different grapes uh well what is that and so that people tend to like the varietals because they they've heard of it before yeah, right. i've heard of chardonnay <laughs> i've heard of cabernet sauvignon i've heard of merlot i've heard of pinots yeah uh but now we're beginning to get into the refinement age perhaps especially here in virginia uh, I like to say that it is totally geographic, that uh, California has uh, trends are amazing. You know, there's the clothing trend and personal grooming trends and, and wine trends. And uh, in California, uh, there are these terrible things called scores. And who gives the scores? Somebody that calls himself a judge gives a score and they'll give a high score to a wine that they like. And uh, then they realize, the wine growers realize that if they can get a high score, boy, they can sell wine for a whole lot more yeah. money yeah. than they could if they were just creating some plunk. And uh, so you try to emulate the flavors in uh, a wine that scores highly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess what I'm saying is the trend in California is to make really hot wines that are jammy and juicy and then that, that kind of limits your, your thinking, oh, this is what wine is supposed to taste yeah. like. And no, in Virginia, you know, we are making a more refined wine, uh, a wine that is more like the old world wines of Europe, Italy, France, Germany, Spain. And, uh, you know, let's grow things that reflect our climate. And by the way, climate is the most uh telling thing about the wine that you're going to grow, uh, grow. climate is 95 mm, percent of it yeah. soil is important but not as important as climate yeah 
Yeah. Well, I found that I've had to lean on the old world thing. See, when I bring that up, everyone's like, oh, okay. When you say, it's like the Bordeaux, you know, it's like, oh, okay. Then they'll, they'll be more receptive to it, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. But anyway, we're working on it, working on it. Since you mentioned climate, and uh, we'll get into like the business side here, but since we have, we're having this climate change that's going on, and that's going to affect, obviously, the grapes that you grow, but also, now that we're, we've had this pandemic that we're in the midst of right now, and hopefully we'll be gone by the end of next year, but we'll see. Um, how is that, I know it's had a, we were just talking before we started, a big effect on your business, on how you, uh, your, your tasting room and, and your venue here. Um, tell me a little bit about that without sure, sure, <laughs> yeah. riding we, the blues. Yeah, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and uh, yeah. reality is certainly struck close to home. At 1.30 this morning, uh, when we found out that our president is positive, it's changed a lot. We yep. uh, we closed down immediately as soon as the governor of Virginia told us to close down in mid-March, and we stayed closed until June. And uh, that meant that uh, people could come by the vineyard and purchase wine, very safe distancing and no personal contact. Uh, that And then we shipped wine via UPS. Uh, and that... that that worked out, uh, and we, we opened in June. Uh, but my wife and I both decided that we wanted to be 100% outside, and I think that fits the guidelines of uh-huh. most health professionals. Let's stay outside. Let's not um, really congregate uh, inside. So we uh, have been outside since June, and it was, as you said, it was very hot. We had a lot of degree days that were way up in the it felt like 100 degrees, right. almost no breeze. We really are thankful that we didn't get rained out but one day this summer. Uh, and that was pretty amazing considering the, the vagueness of, of nature. Uh, we don't know what we're going to do this winter. Uh, yeah. We have no idea. We are committed to staying outside. Yeah. We are not going to bring people inside this tasting room. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we will see. Uh, I think that I'm excited about how people are excited about wines, excited about Virginia wines in particular. Yes. Uh, I will say that Virginia Tech and the Virginia Wine Office have been doing a great job about spreading the word that we, we can grow wine here. And I have to bring up the name of a, a, a great uh, benefactor of wine in Virginia, Dr. Bruce Ocklin. Dr. Bruce Ocklin uh, was a California wine professor and... Uh, was hired by Virginia Tech in the 80s and and came to Virginia and has spread the word. And uh, he has done a huge amount to kind of help teach Virginia wine growers how to make better wine. Mm -hmm. Virginia Tech in two respects, both the analogy side, that is Dr. Zocklin, but really more importantly on the vineyard side, uh, Dr. Tony Wolf. Boy, Dr. Tony Wolf is a Cornell-trained uh, PhD in viticulture, and uh, he's been in Virginia for 30 years now, I think. And uh, he has, I think, been more responsible for having wine improve in quality in Virginia than anybody else. But hand in hand, Dr. Bruce Auckland, Dr. Tony Wolf, they have just dedicated themselves to figuring out how to grow better wine in Virginia. So yeah. Virginia Tech, uh, 
I might add that uh, my son also works with Dr. Tony Wolf and a great, interesting job. And his job is to travel around the state and talk with wine growers all over the state and help them grow better wine. And that's what they're doing. Yeah, they are. They are. We are, um, as I was going to say, we're seated in your tasting room that I've never been in. I've, I've been here three times before because I don't know if you when you reopen, if you plan on using your house, because that's the, that's where you used to do tasting. You you live in a very historic house. How old is your uh, two hundred and one year old home yeah. Uh, yeah. that was built by that Nixon family who yes. got the land grant? Uh, yeah, that that is our pride and joy. Uh, we built this new building because we needed more space. Yes. So my, in 1950, my dad added a two-car garage to the 201-year-old home. We made all of our wine there for over 10 years, and we were way out of space. And I hesitated. I hated borrowing money, but I went to the bank, borrowed, as I say, three wheelbarrows full of money to build this building. <laughs> and uh, that has really allowed us to make more wine, grow more wine. Yeah. Now, this is a, this is beautiful. Uh, place here and below here is where you actually do some of the all of the all of the process is downstairs in fact right today we're racking off uh our rosé the fermentation is just about finished and we're going to rack it off the leaves the sediment and uh, then we're going to press uh chambersin this afternoon uh we have three bins full of uh, chambersin that we're going to press off the skins this afternoon we harvested that uh, a week ago today, and uh, the fermentation is very close to finish. And we will then press off the wine into tanks and then settle the tanks, that is, and then pump the clean wine off the tanks. And then it'll age in barrel for a year or two, depending on the wine. And then we will bottle it uh, probably about uh, 2022. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, Bill, two more questions, and I'm going to let you go get back to work. First one is, if you could go back in time or send yourself a message back in time, 2001, when you were about to get into this business, and you knew there was something that you wish you had known then that you know now, is there, what would you say? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I love time travel. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's wonderful. And... Uh, you know, dreaming and time travel is kind of connected. Um, what would I do differently? Um, okay, one of the things my children have suggested is we would have more children because <laughs> that is the workforce around here is children. So yeah. there are three children right now. They said, well, you should have had more children. Yeah. And the farming would be, you know, more hands make the job easier. Yeah. So that's uh, that's kind of a... <laughs> I don't know whether that's uh, realistic or not, you know, time travel. What else would I do differently? Um, I think I work at a slow pace. Um, many people who get into this business or a community of wine, um, agriculture, have done other things for most of their life. Um, and I don't want to demean them. Um, salesmen, lawyers, doctors, um, internet gurus, uh, I feel that our approach as a family was pretty savvy. It's pretty conservative as far as uh, taking risks. Uh, 
what I worry about is, is people who are, uh, gosh, they're enthralled with wine. And they said, well, look at all these wineries in Virginia. I'm going to start a winery. Mm -hmm. And I do worry about them because many times they'll plant too many grapes and they don't really know quite how to deal with it. And um, they'll hire great consultants, uh, but then they'll never, sometimes never be able to throw the yeast themselves. They'll, they'll hire a consultant to throw the yeast. And uh, I feel that you just need to jump into it and, yeah. and do it. And you might make mistakes, but then you'll learn by your own mistakes much better than perhaps having a consultant tell you. Yeah. Well, my, throw my little editorial comment in. The, at the wineries that I like the best, you're, you're, that includes Zephaniah, I have found when I've spoken to the owners, the ones, the people who have focused on making the wine first, then making the business, make the best wine. Whereas a lot of people, like you were saying, when they go from another industry, they decide to build their facility and their winery and their tasting room and plan all that out. And then they say, oh, let's make wine too. Let's hire this guy to make wine. And their wine ends up not being so good. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you say that because we planted grapes in 2001 and made wine and then didn't get a license to sell wine until 2007. Uh -huh. So there was six years of how does this work? How can we do this better? Oh, gosh, that didn't work. Hmm, good thing we don't have to sell that wine because. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, really, yeah, go slow. I yeah. think that's a good adage. Uh, but it is a it, it's a long approach because it takes eight years from the time you plant a vineyard and then plant a vineyard and then grow the grapes and make the wine before the wine is in the bottle, particularly a red wine and ready to go. Um, a lot of people can work their way around this by buying wine from somebody else and just getting into the business aspect of it, of selling a wine. And uh, I, <laughs> One of the terms, I, this might be a little bit off base, but <laughs> we talk about it all the time that uh, what we don't need in Virginia is more bars in the country. Uh, we fly, we consider ourselves to be under the radar. We don't even, it, our sign does not say wine. Uh, it just says Zephaniah. Yeah. And uh, we want to people to come out and experience our wine, try our wine, enjoy our their their time here and uh take their our wine home with them uh rather than um being a venue to a bar right <laughs> and that's that's severe on my part because yeah. uh gosh you know they the wineries have their place uh they're entertaining their venues that uh but we we would prefer people to mm, be more inclined to enjoy the wine and we are wine tasting. So you would enjoy wine, you would buy some wine and then take it home and enjoy it at home. Yeah. Uh, the last thing that we need in Virginia is for people to be driving around who are not sober enough to drive. Yeah. Uh, that's That could be a serious problem. It hasn't been yet, but let's hope it stays that way. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great place to end. I'm going to ask my one last question. If there's a misconception or something that you'd like to clear up, and we've talked about a lot of this, so it may be redundant, about Virginia wine or about uh, Zephaniah, uh, Farm Vineyard. Uh, is there one, is something you'd like to say? That's a great question. <laughs> I, um, the, you know, somebody from 
Richmond, Virginia, who had been in uh, promotions all their life, came here. And uh, the comment that they made that just rang true with me uh, about Virginia wine is better than it used to be. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it's kind of gross and coarse to say that, but gosh, 30 or 40 years ago, um, the wine was not that great. Mm -hmm. And uh, with new winemakers, new techniques, Dr. Zockman, Virginia Tech, the Virginia Wine Office, and people getting more serious about trying different wines in Virginia, uh, I think that has made a lot of difference in Virginia and uh, gotten more serious about, about Virginia wine. And it, uh, Virginia is a great brand. Uh, Loudoun County is a great brand. Uh, Loudoun County had 400 dairy farms when we moved here. Now there's one and they're really in the genetics business. They're selling embryos <laughs> and, and things like that. Uh, but I would like to see this beautiful farmland of Loudoun County stay in agriculture. And I think that Wine growing is a way to do that. And personally, I would like to be able to hold on to our family farm for three, four, five more generations. Yeah. I don't want to go too far in the future, but <laughs> yeah, houses yeah. grow very well here, but houses are the last crop that'll grow here. Yeah. 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 Well, Bill, thank you very much for your time. This has been great. Joan and I will be back soon. Well, thank <laughs> you. I, I enjoyed this, Howard. So thank you. Thanks. Well, that's another show in the books, and I really had a fantastic time visiting Stephaniah Farm Vineyard with Bill Hatch. I know you would too, so if you're ever in or near the Leesburg area, I put it on your itinerary. You need to go there. I'd like to thank Bill Hatch and all the great folks at Zephaniah for being so generous with their time. I learned something new about Virginia and wine every time I'm there, and I hope that you enjoyed our conversation today. I would like to ask that you please subscribe to the pod if you have not done so yet. I promise I'll introduce you to some of the best folks in the DMV and surrounding area. And I'm also committed to bringing you some of the best places to find craft beverages in the Mid-Atlantic region. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the pod. The more it grows, the more I can get word out about the craft beverage culture in the DMV. This podcast was produced by my friends at Q9. Listen, if they can make a schmo like me sound good, imagine what they could do for someone with talent and with a voice. So if you're in the podcast biz, please Google Q9 and ask them about their services. You can tell them that I referred you to them. You'll thank me later. They're good. I'll be back next week with another craft beverage maker in the DMV to introduce to you. I know there's a ton of media out there you could be listening to besides me. That's why I work so hard to bring you the content that I do. I truly appreciate your time investment in me and this show. Thank you again for listening. Remember, always have a designated driver, so I will be able to see you next time. East Vicata. You have been listening to Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, part of the Fletcher Podcast Group. You can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time.